Hello, and welcome to Tree Telling, a mama podcast that explores a forest of ideas in relation to trees. Tree Telling has been developed as part of the exhibition Tree Story, curated by Charlotte Day and Dr. Brian Martin, and presented at MAMA, Monash University Museum of Art, from February to April 2021. My name is Kate Barber, and I'll be your host for Tree Telling. Before we commence, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners and elders, past, present and emerging, of the lands on which Monash University operates, and on which these interviews were conducted. I acknowledge Aboriginal connection to material and creative practice on these lands for more than 60,000 years. Over four episodes for Tree Telling, we'll be hearing from artists, academics and authors whose work intersects in different ways with trees. From those who have created a unique photographic portrait of Gandalf's staff, one of the tallest trees in the Southern Hemisphere, to those who research trees in cli-fi, that's climate fiction, to those who create music for and write to trees. I Speak for the Trees is the inaugural episode and it centres trees and the people who speak on their behalf. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Professor Jacqueline Troy, Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney, who's calling for the reinstatement of Indigenous names of plants and trees and shares with us her deep knowledge of and connection to country. We'll also hear from Tasmanian author Ben Walter, reading a personal response to the 2016 fires that devastated large parts of Tasmania's Tarkane Wilderness, the biggest tract of temperate rainforest in the Southern Hemisphere. But firstly, I'm joined by Professor Tim Entwistle, Director and Chief Executive of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. Tim will be speaking with me about the concept of plant blindness and the role that the Royal Botanic Gardens plays in increasing plant literacy. I should note here that all the interviews were conducted via Zoom and in some cases there's a a little bit of background noise and loss in sound quality. I very much hope this won't distract from the rich content that we're presenting. Welcome, Tim. We're delighted to have you speaking with us about plant blindness, a term coined and introduced in 1998 by Elizabeth Schussler and James Wandersey, a pair of US botanists and biology educators. But before we start, I wondered if you could introduce yourself for our listeners' benefit and give them a a bit of an introduction to your background. Yeah, thanks, Kate. I'm a botanist by training, so I I trained to be a plant scientist. In fact, I ended up working on algae, identifying algae in freshwater streams because I was a bit of a a bushwalker. And I went from there to botanic gardens. I worked in Melbourne's botanic gardens for quite a number of years. Then I went up to Sydney to become director of the botanic gardens up there and then to Kew Gardens in London, where I was on the senior management of that beautiful garden in Kew for a couple of years. Then eight years ago, I came back to Melbourne Gardens, where where it really all started for me and where I I think I got my first love of plants from. So it's it's a circular journey, but very much associated with plants and algae, of course, but also with botanic gardens. I first became aware of or started thinking about plant blindness during lockdown last year where I was going on lots of sanity walks and particularly around the Merry Creek I became aware that I didn't know the names of so many of the plants and trees that I was walking past and when I started looking into the concept of plant blindness which was coined and introduced as we've discussed by Elizabeth Schusler and James Wandersey they defined it quite broadly including and I quote 
the inability to see or notice the plants in one's own environment, leading to the inability to recognise the importance of plants in the biosphere and in human affairs. And they specify that this condition was particularly applicable to first world and developed countries where we've become separated or dislocated from nature. I wondered if you could tell us when you first became aware of this phenomenon and why you think it is so prevalent. I think as a as a botanist, you're always aware of this. You, you're very aware quickly when you get into plants that animals take precedence. And that's it's a, it's a natural thing in some ways. People see animals in pictures before they see the plants. And they do see that plant life as a kind of a green wallpaper sometimes. And I think the other way of expressing it is uh, plant literacy is absent. So I think you're quite right in particularly uh, Western cultures today, we don't have the words to talk about them. We're not familiar with which plants are which. A sort of basic fundamental knowledge that helps us to distinguish between those different bits of green. So for me, it was something I think uh, you brought up with as a, as a botanist. And I remember, you know, about six or seven years ago, I gave a, a talk in Sydney around plant blindness and plant illiteracy, as I called it. And that really focused my mind on this as a, as a problem. So not only something that botanists worried about, but something that might affect all of us and might affect the way we look after and care for the world. Yes, certainly that idea that plants become a backdrop or a, a green wallpaper, I think that's a really great visual to our lives is is something I think children encounter from a very early age. I'm thinking about all the books I had for my children that introduced them to animals. And I really can't think of any that focused on trees and plants. So that I think from a very early age in education, we prioritise animals over plants. One of the things that I read about in Schussler and Wandersee's research was that, as you've mentioned, one of the things they suggested was it's because plants lack visual attention cues, you know, the, no faces, and they also don't move and attract your attention in the same way that animals do. That's right. Um, and, but it's a, it's a different scale and a different pace. So plants work uh, more slowly and we're used to things, as you say, animals and faces and we see them. Plants can be quite brilliant and bright and they're great big flowers and say orchid bloom so it's not that the, the drama is not there it's just that we're we're not used to really interpreting that and we also I think it's interesting you mentioned faces because we when we do start to sort of appreciate plants sometimes we tend to be very anthropomorphic about it we want plants to be as intelligent as humans or as as animals and to me that's actually not quite the right, right way to look at it it's really about appreciating plants for what they can do. And they do all kinds of things that we could never do. You know, basically using sun's energy to convert carbon dioxide into sugars and oxygen that fuels the whole world. We can't do that. Uh, that's not something we're capable of doing. So we should appreciate that on its, at its own intrinsic value, if you like, rather than perhaps try and say, oh, the plants are a bit like us because they do this. They, they communicate a bit like that. So my, my approach to this is, we, we should appreciate them as part of nature, as an essential part of nature, and find ways to incorporate their stories into our lives and not try to turn them into animals, if you like. Uh, from your perspective, Tim, what consequences can plant blindness have, um, not just for the environment, but also for human health? Look, what it, what it means initially is that we, we don't appreciate the variety and diversity of plants. So if we, we sort of see a bit of greenery, we think, oh, the world's okay, whereas it could be... It could be lots of environmental weeds that are displacing native plants, which then 
are part of the ecosystem, then part of looking, you know, they're there for the animals as well. So you sort of, it's not being able to discern the important parts of what's out there. Uh, so that that that's part of the, part of the problem. I think it's also that we, if you don't value or you don't understand or you can't put a name on something, you then don't take action for it. So at the botanic gardens, for example, a lot of what we do, we bring people into a beautiful place, we create wonderful landscapes, but they're made up of plants from either all over the world or perhaps a particular country or sometimes local plants from the area. And we interpret and talk about those because we want people to find plants attractive, relaxing, all those things that we know the plant world does for us and the natural world does for us. But we also want them to, to pick up enough information so when they make a decision in their life, they, they understand the implications. So, so, you know, as you're sort of asking that, that what's the difference in, in, I guess, being plant literate or in curing plant blindness is we start to make decisions that uh, benefit plants and therefore benefit the planet. And what kind of things do you think we could start to, to do ourselves to become more plant literate? I mean, like a few simple steps, perhaps. I think one way is, is to start um, getting to know our local plants. And that might sound a little bit old fashioned, you know, sort of an old naturalist approach where you, you know that there's a gum tree at the end of your road. You, you know that uh, perhaps the grasses there are local grasses or, or it doesn't matter even if it's a, an overseas tree, an oak tree, you start to look at it, you see lichens in it, you see mosses, you start to realise there are, are fungi beneath it supporting that. It's really getting to understand and sort of be able to talk about those things. So the first thing is to have that a kind of a literacy. And I don't mean scientific names. I'm not a botanist who thinks you've got to know the scientific name for everything, but you you can talk about those things. That's that's probably the first step. I think the other one is to grow plants. People are certainly everyone seems to be a natural gardener in, in some way. People are quite happy to do that. So that's part of it too, understanding plants. Once you watch a plant grow, grow it from seed you start to understand the pace of life, you start to understand what a plant needs. And then, then I suppose it's, it's valuing their role in our lives. And that can be in the country, in wild areas, but equally in the city, in our urban parks and what we do with plants and where we plant them and how we look after those. I think there's, a, there's sort of a, a fundamental presence of plants around us that, that helps us to make that big step forward. Are you aware, Tim, of the rates of university students uh, studying botany? Because I have read that in the UK particularly, some of the courses are being phased out and they've seen a real lack in students engaging with the studies of botany. Do you know where that might be coming from or how we might change that? Yeah, this, look, the same thing is happening in Australia, particularly sort of we call it whole plant botany, and that's sort of understanding a plant as, a, as an individual or as a unit, if you like. A lot, there's a lot of work going on in molecular studies and understanding some of the agricultural sort of biopharma aspects of plants, and I think that's incredibly important, actually. But alongside that, there is a real reduction in universities in basic training of what we call plant taxonomy and uh, plant systematics or evolution, understanding of that, and that's dropped back in Australia and overseas. It's something we like to contribute to in botanic gardens. I don't quite know why it's happened. I, I suspect it's quite complicated. It'll be about you know too much being on the curriculum. It'll be about other things taking priority, the fact that we now do a lot of molecular work and that pushes aside these areas that might seem a little bit old-fashioned. But if we lose that basic knowledge and basic understanding of plants, it comes back to that community response, if you like. We need that as a community 
we need those fundamental skills and we need scientists and, and those going to university, not only science, anyone who's doing a little bit of basic training in these areas, whether it's through their schools or, or wherever, to get that knowledge about pain so they can talk about them, they can discuss them and they have enough fundamental information. So that, that has gone, it has faded I wonder if it's just seen as a slightly old-fashioned thing. And the trouble is if we lose that knowledge, it's a little bit like traditional knowledge in communities. Once you lose it and you lose the language, you start to forget. Yes, absolutely. And I can imagine that could have you know, terrible consequences for diseases in plants being identified early and the way in which scientists and botanists are, are often leading those things. If we lose that knowledge, we could see many species decimated. Yeah, that's that's quite correct. And and one, I mean, one project we're working on at the gardens here we call the Nature and Science Precinct, and it's really connecting nature and science together. And what it's doing though, fundamentally, is pulling our scientists outside their buildings, bringing them out, talking to the public more. But also, we've got this rich collection of we call it the State Botanical Collection of preserved plants, and it's a historic record of our flora. We want to turn that inside out and use that to connect people to plants and to nature. And for us, that's a really important part of a botanic garden. So we, we, we're not, we do the pretty end, we do the, the lovely, beautiful part of the gardens. But if we don't make that connection between people and nature, we will be failing in our, our duty as a botanic garden and I'll be failing as a director of a botanic garden. One of my uh, favourite places at the botanic gardens is the sensory garden. I love the way in which you really get a sense that young people especially well, all ages are obviously enjoy it but you know for young children some of whom perhaps that's one of the first places where they really get to engage closely with nature it really stimulates all their senses and is something that I think is really such an important thing um, for children to to experience there. Yes that's that's one of the great things about gardens and plants too is that while I, you know the pace is different to ours there's, they're changing through seasons. They're changing through as they age or, you know, a young sapling becomes a tree. The sensory garden has smells, it has colours. Uh, really, if you walk into a garden, all your senses are, are, are brought to life. And I think that's a lovely appealing thing of a garden compared to lots of other places. You know, it's, it's different to seeing a film or it's different to seeing uh, even a museum in a way. You, you get all these extra uh, extra layers to the to visit and to the experience and the sensory garden where you can get up close to plants and smell them and I think people's people's first contact with plants is probably through eating through herbs through rubbing a, a thyme or you know a bay leaf or something there's a it's those associations that live with us and that and that to me is also about addressing plant blindness realizing that those plants in your food and those herbs that's part of the plant world and, you know, I, I love the thought that a, a thyme or a, or a bay comes from the Mediterranean and on some rocky coast there, it's now in our backyard. There's not only the, the cooking, the culinary story, but also the story of where it used to grow and where it came from. You know, I think that all, that, all those links are just fascinating. Uh, to finish up, Tim, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I, there's so many trees in your care in the Royal Botanic Gardens collection, but if you have a, a favourite tree, a tree that's, significant to you or perhaps a, a story behind one of the trees in the botanic gardens that you'd like to share with listeners? Well look I, I often I worked in Sydney for a while and the Wallamai pine used to be a favourite and it had a lovely story of uh, discovery from we thought we only thought it was only known from the fossil record and it was rediscovered but look the one I'd probably pick out 
at the moment it's a thing called the rainbow gum and it's a strange tree in our garden because it's not doing too well here in a way it's a tree that comes from the philippines so it's a tropical tree it's a eucalypt now most people think of gum trees as australian and the vast majority hundreds and hundreds of them come from australia about three or four come from overseas this one from the philippines and it has beautiful rainbow bark when it's older so it's going to get these these colors of blues and purples and greens and so i'm really really keen for it to grow here but when we planted in the gardens we knew it was going to be difficult to grow here we're very keen to grow things that will survive the changing climate in melbourne so we actually have a quite a scientific way of assessing whether plants will grow in 50 years this tree when you run it through the analysis should not be in Melbourne and should not grow here. So what I what I quite like about it is we're going to try our hardest, get this plant to grow, produce this beautiful bark, tell a story about where it comes from, from the tropics, tell a story about the origin of eucalypts, tell a story about how sometimes it's worth putting that extra effort into growing something you really like. So you might call it a director's folly, but it's, it's uh, at the moment my favourite tree in the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. Thanks so much, Tim, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Great pleasure. Thanks, Kate. I'm now joined by Professor Jacqueline Troy, an Agarigu woman from the Snowy Mountains of New South Wales and Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. In a recent article in The Guardian, Jacqueline called for the reinstatement of Aboriginal names and knowledge systems for trees and plants. For her, naming is not just about classification but also about acknowledging connection. Welcome, Jacqueline. I'm so pleased that you could join us today for Tree Telling. And I'm interested to speak with you about a recent article you wrote for The Guardian about the importance of knowing the Indigenous names of trees. And I understand this is part of your broader academic research on documenting, describing and reviving Indigenous languages. I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Yes, I am really delighted to be able to talk about trees, one of my favourite subjects, actually, and I think it's something that is very dear to the hearts of Indigenous people all around the world. Everywhere I go, I find Indigenous communities that have a very personal relationship with trees. I mean, with the natural world around them anyway. In Australia, of course, we derive our personality, uh, who we are, our group identifications and everything are connected up with the natural world, if you like, country, as we say, with a capital C country, just to make it more important. And of course, waters and land are, are very much seen to be country together. So depending on whether you're salt water or freshwater, desert, or in my case, ice mob. So I'm Narigu of the snowy mountains in southeastern Australia on the New South Wales side as it is now with these artificial state boundaries that aren't really Aboriginal boundaries and up in my country we have spectacular snow gums that are very very famous trees because of their fabulous colours when their bark is wet they look quite jewel-like and they grow in this big trunk twisted sometimes they look like they've been blown almost off a mountain so they and they each have their own very strong personality and in our culture we we do actually personify these trees so and we regard them as family members and part of our ancestral storylines but also part of the here and now because the the past is always part of the present really in aboriginal thinking about time we don't really 
have this kind of sense of diachronic time in the way that English and other European languages tend to force you into thinking about time as a sort of linear thing. So everything that's ever happened has, is still happening. And these trees are part of those endless happenings. And of course, some of the trees can be extremely ancient. I work also in Northwest Pakistan with people from Sawat, uh, indigenous people of the Dardic communities particularly with a group called Tawali. One of my great research colleagues and friends there, Mujahid Tawali, he takes the tribal name as his other name, has talked to me about their very ancient trees, Law Sitham, which are the cedar trees or deodar of the Himalayan region. He's in the Hindu Kush. These trees grow up to, for up to a thousand years. And our trees in Australia, some of the um, native trees also grow, indigenous trees grow for hundreds and hundreds of years and the slower growing ones, you know, for well over a thousand years, those trees in Tasmania that the Palawa Tasmanian people hold dear, some of those trees like the hue and pine trees that grow for you know, one to 2,000, even 3,000 years as I understand it. So that's a long time for one tree if you like to be part of a community so it's not surprising that aboriginal people in australia and other indigenous people worldwide regard these plants as family members as ancestral figures that have just kept going as our time goes and as our ancestors go they don't ever disappear when somebody dies they become a star in the sky is our belief system in narugu country and again that's a common belief around Australia and worldwide amongst Indigenous people. And my grandmother said to me, you won't miss me when I'm gone. Look up there, I will be. I'll be the bright star looking down at you. You know, so the, there's this idea that people continue. And then we believe that a shooting star shows the return of one of these ancestors, one of these souls. Then a baby is born or someone is pregnant, you know, so this recycling. And these trees just continue on and on and on. So you can see how they become embedded in people's worlds. I'm really interested in how people describe trees. And I was just thinking about in the Sydney area, I've worked quite a lot on the language of the Sydney area, which has many names depending on which clan group um, you're talking about. But there's one main language across the Sydney basin. So years ago when I was writing about this language, I called it the Sydney language. But it's wonderful now I hear all the different clan groups talking about it as their language. So where my university sits, the University of Sydney, it's on Gadigal country. And on our campus, we've now got many of these wonderful trees, grass trees called Xantharia is their scientific name. I think Xantharia media, to be precise. I'm looking at my own book about the language of Sydney. <laughs> and uh, when I look at this book, there is an illustration of Azanthria, the tree itself is the gaddy, the trunk is the, the leaves that come out of the top of the, the trunk of this beautiful black trunked resin filled tree um, is the gulgadi and up out of the middle of it is this long spear-like thing and that is the galum and yigali. So the every single part of this tree is named and it's named for the kind of use 
that people have for all the different parts of the tree. So this tree, this gaddy, is actually a one-stop shop for a whole lot of important resources for everyday living. And, of course, you would never chop one of these down any more than you'd chop any other tree down. As an Aboriginal person of the group belonging to whichever tree we're talking about, people would use resources from a tree. You know, you often see people have cut coolaman, which are water-carrying or baby carrying or food carrying pieces of bark that are curved and are sealed often, often with the resin from the gaddy in the case of the where the gaddy grows. So this, you'll see a, a scar on a tree. People talk about scarred trees, but the tree is still thriving. So the tree may have a mark on it to show that it has provided this important resource to the community, but it's respected. It was, wasn't killed so that this coolaman could be made Equally, much bigger things are cut off trees. So you you will see large slabs of bark cut off to make canoe and you will see large slabs of bark cut off to make shelter. So, And people keep those big slabs of bark and decorate the inside of them. And uh, these are used as the kind of roofing material, if you like, for the, the kinds of buildings people made. And in the Sydney area, the word for a house or a dwelling was a gunya. And these bunya were made with these big slabs of bark and they were preserved. And then a whole lot of brushes would be put over the top to either create um, more waterproofing or a bit more shade. Or, and, and they also provide a beautiful smell, you know, when people cut branches and brushes, brush, brushy looking, scrubby looking bits off the melaleucas, the smell of tea tree is just magnificent. So, you know, these are people lived in this symbiotic relationship with trees and the trees provided for people. They were their family members. They were, they were named personally. They were named for all their different parts. And uh, Gaddy provided, as I said, uh, resin from its trunk. The, uh, it was full of resin. When you heat up these little sort of knobbly pieces that you see on the Gaddy, they render down to, into a sort of resin like the sap from them becomes this very strong resin that's actually one of the the hardest substances known to humans so hard like super glue and you could bond things onto things like axe heads onto shafts you could waterproof as i said a coolerman or a canoe they were it's just an amazing substance and then the long spike up the middle which is the flower of the gaddy has this very hard long stick that was made into a spear so you often get them called spear trees. The head at the top, the flower part at the very top of this long spear, when it's actually in flower, is covered in tiny little blossoms, little white or pale yellow blossoms that are very much insect attracting. So they're food for our bush bees, which then make sugar bag bush honey, which hangs out of another tree. So this marvellous symbiosis and you could soak down the head of these long spikes with these little flowers to make a sweet drink. So every single part of this particular gaddy was of great value and respected and understood by the Aboriginal people who were Gadigal and the Gadigal and other communities around Sydney and the Gadigal would be responsible for the increase ceremony for the gaddy. So they are the people who perform the corroboree, sing the songs to make sure that the gaddy continues to thrive. And of course, part of its thriving is to be fire affected. So 
people would do control burns so that trees like the gaddy would thrive. That's why it has this black trunk. It loves to be fire affected and then um, it'll respond with bright yellow, bright yellow, long spiky leaves and often will immediately flower. So there's, there's this sort of deep understanding of trees in our communities also and how they respond to climate, to weather change, to incidents like fire. And then at the different times of the year, they will have different kinds of names depending on whether they're flowering or whether they're in remission from flowering or whether they're fruiting or not, you know. So so it tell the naming is all about the life cycle of the tree as well. So it's this deep understanding of, of trees as as a whole being, not just as something that oh, look at that, we're going to cut that down and turn it into matchsticks or toilet paper, even worse, which is, you know, from an Aboriginal point of view, a kind of horrifying thing to do to a tree. Thank you. That was a beautiful introduction and I think giving us a sense of the way in which Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander peoples have such a a deep cultural, philosophical and spiritual connection to, to the land all the plants and trees that grow on it. I feel the way in which taxonomically the English give names to to trees and plants is very static. There is one name and perhaps that's, you know, part of us not having that that connection. And so it enables the disrespect and and the way in which they're treated as objects. Yes, the trivialising of trees and how many people think of the name of the flower for a tree? They don't. They sort of, we talk about a eucalyptus like the yellow box where from an Aboriginal point of view, every part of the tree, its bark, its leaves, its trunk, its canopy, what it was doing at different times of the year will have a name and the flowers, whereas we just call it in, you know, colloquially the yellow box because it has yellow flowers. It doesn't distinguish between the tree and the flower, which are the most obvious changes that trees will go through. And from an Aboriginal point of view, that's extremely trivial sort of understanding. Yes. I mean, language is one of the most powerful forces in shaping us, isn't it? And there's such a real power in naming something. I was talking with Tim Entwistle, who's the director at the Royal Botanic Gardens here in Melbourne, and we were talking about the concept of plant blindness, which is an inability to notice or recognise plants in one's own environment. And I think part of the reason for that is, for many of us as urban dwellers, we've really disconnected from nature and that makes us blind to the natural world around us. So I wonder if we were able to reinstate Indigenous names, which is something all of us in this country could benefit from, we might have a better connection and therefore better respect to our environment. Uh, Have you, in terms of, I guess, positing the idea of reinstating Indigenous names, is that something that through your work with language, and in particular the Sydney language or Gadigal language, that you're hoping to see might happen in schools, or is this happening already in some Sydney areas? Well, one of the difficulties for language renewal programs, as I, I like to call them, also known as revival, but I don't really like that word because it sounds like something has died and you're trying yes. to vivify it again. But our languages don't die and it's not until the people of a language disappear altogether and that doesn't that is very rare. It has happened in Australia, sadly, but um, 
even when that happens, often another group will move into the area where those people were and, and the language will, you know, continue. So because the language, language and country is intimately connected as well. So how do you speak about a place? Well, you speak about it in the language of the place. This is why Aboriginal people are usually um, highly multilingual and that was normal. So I think that one of the biggest problems we have with this these renewal programs is that quite often the domains of language use are not being brought actively into the public space. So people know about how to talk about trees, for example, in, la- in their languages, but the kind of language teaching that goes on is generally, or general, it's more just getting people using language in a way that you would use any other language in a daily daily setting, you know, sort of how, how you introduce yourself, how you say hello, maybe where you come from. So I would say, Nai Jackie, I am Jackie of the Namichimitong clan in the Snowy Mountains. And But then for me to talk about my country and my own language is going to take a bit of work to sort of get the language going again and to have a focus around a domain of language use like how to talk about trees would be a wonderful project for a school you know I think it's possible now for all schools in Australia to teach an Australian language I wrote the Australian curriculum for languages framework for teaching Aboriginal languages and Torres Strait Islander languages I was the lead writer for that in the Australian curriculum means that every school in Australia can teach one or more Australian languages. So it would be lovely to see schools working with local communities to develop ways to talk about trees, for example. Currently, I'm doing a a project with the Wiradjuri Condobolin Corporation and Orange Aboriginal Medical Service and my colleagues at the University of Sydney, and it's called Talking About Health in Wiradjuri. So you know, there's no reason, I think this is, you know, there's an attempt in that project to build the domain of discussion around health. And of course, that will involve talking about trees and other plants, because we used these things in our health and healing and medicine. So trees have a a role in everything we do. So in talking about health, we will be talking about plants and trees. But it would be great to have projects around Australia and schools, particularly for children to learn how to talk about trees and really connect up. For example, understanding the gaddy in that way, so that it's a multi-part plant. It's not just one entity. It's got all these different things about it that are of significance and that we can name and talk about and then talk about what the tree can share with us and what it, it can't. You know, obviously, if you're taking bark you can't take bark right around the trunk that would be ring barking and that would kill a tree with the gaddy you can take some of the they almost look like scales you know these big big sort of knobbly resin filled pieces that are all the way down the trunk of the the gaddy the xanthoria you can take some of those but you can't take the whole trunk or a big chunk off it because you'll kill the plant so that sort of intimate understanding of the life cycle of a plant, what, what you can harvest or that the tree can offer you and what you can't do, you certainly can't cut them down. You know, that's, it's abhorrent, you know, cutting down our old growth forests. You know, again, these are, these are trees that are family members, they're ancestral figures, they're, and they should be for everybody, whether you're Aboriginal or not. They are. They have been contributors to our environment for thousands of years. Yes, certainly with the recent devastating fires in Australia, we should be learning more about Indigenous knowledge, 
in, in regards to cultural burning. And I mean, hopefully with organisations like Fire Sticks Alliance, we are becoming more aware of the knowledge that Indigenous people, the deep knowledge that Indigenous people hold about the country and how it should be treated and, and how it can be maintained and not just used for one one purpose or one one time and then thrown away like chopping down the tree. That's right. The, the deep desire to maintain the life of the tree in the way that we maintain the life of everything around us. You know, you don't randomly, wantonly destroy things and and even when animals are killed to be eaten it's not just for the sake of hunting them you don't take more than it's very normal worldwide in indigenous communities that you never take more than you need and that includes this approach to how you help yourself if you like to bark from a tree but the tree can give it to you in a particular way. It can't give you all its bark. And if you respect it, if you maintain the environment, so as I said, some trees require fire to thrive. They they don't germinate unless they don't, they, you know, their seeds don't crack open if they don't, aren't exposed to extreme heat and from fire. And so Aboriginal people understood this. So it wasn't just burning to reduce fuel it was also burning to make sure that the plants did what you wanted them to do and that you know if you burn country and the the green grass comes up the green shoots come up the kangaroo start to breed and you know they respond to this fresh green grass so it's it's an animal husbandry technique to fire country as well it's not only to prevent catastrophic bushfires it's actually an intrinsic part of farming in the way that we're talking more and more in Australia now about Aboriginal farming methods and animal husbandry. Of course, people did this. You you can't just rely on wandering through the bush, hoping something might be there for you to eat. And it's it's just like all farmers know, and all people doing animal husbandry, managing animals as farmers, understand what will trigger reproduction, what will trigger fruiting, all of these things are intimately connected and our country is fire adapted. It's been very well researched now that it's quite likely that the fire adaptation was actually part of tens of thousands of years of Aboriginal people farming country in this way. And the, the plants have adapted to the burn and the burn creates better soil in a place where we had very little topsoil. So burning is also part of making the ground nutrient rich that's why suddenly all these little plants come up when after a fire, you know, all through the country, all through my country, where it was terribly badly burnt in the snowy mountains, the beginning of last year and end of 2019, all through that country, you see plants struggling back because the fires were so intense, but they are responding to this now nutrient rich ash covered ground. It'll take a long time because the burn was so deep. But, you know, it's created a kind of nutrient-rich soil that the, the plants will thrive on. Yeah, thank you, Jacqueline. I really hope that perhaps through schools education, there might be a way of teaching all of us about the Indigenous names, but also the meanings of plants, which would really help, I think, to deepen all of our connection to the land that we live on. So thank you for sharing your deep knowledge with us today. Thank you. And I'd like to end on, I was looking in this word list from Sydney. There is even a word for the shadow of a tree, bulu. 
Let's not see our trees just become shadows or what's left of an impression of a tree after a shocking burn. We've just heard from Professor Jacqueline Troy and what a profound image Jacqueline has left us with. Following the catastrophic bushfires we experienced across Australia in 2019 and the constellation of crises around the world in 2020, it seems more important than ever to acknowledge and learn from First Nations people, from their deep ecological knowledge and practices and how these can be applied for climate change adaption. We'll close the episode with Tasmanian author Ben Walter, who reads for us his essay, Speak for the Trees, Hope and Hopelessness Mingle in the Singed Tarkine, which was first published in Mianjin in March of 2017. I'm very grateful to Ben for providing permission to include this on tree telling and for reading this for us from his home in Tasmania. We're driving up from the Rapid River, a beer-coloured tumult capped with froth and busy with rain. Huge myrtles the size of eucalypts were camped on one bank and the blackwood was just coming into yellow wattle flower, an unexpected sunshine in the dim wet green. On the ground we'd spaced our steps around conical mounds rising like wide, muddy candles, the fragile homes of burrowing crayfish. After the fires were going, there was a group of us that were watching closely where they were going and where they might go, and we were pretty nervous about what might be taken out. Will Beckett Falls go? Will it get down to the Rapid River? On the other side of the bridge, there'd been a black and brown mess of burnt trees and leaves. It had looked as though a giant had picked up the entire forest and shaken it in ash and then dropped it down again, for the fires did get down to the Rapid River spooling through the guts of Tasmania's Tarkine region. They got to a lot of places, more than 60,000 hectares in the Moorbunna fire alone. We're skirting the western border of this burn. On the fire service maps back in January, this fire had seemed enormous, as though a toddler had pushed a long black paintbrush through the northwestern corner of a map of Tasmania. There are a lot of private messages between people, talking about what was and wasn't being done, and of course none of us are firefighters, but we sort of felt we were the only ones who were really thinking about what gems could be lost. It's Nick Monk talking. He's driving his grey Subaru Forester through the steep curves and watching out for fallen trees. He knows this area much better than me, and he's an old friend. We grew up in the same road in Lindisfarne, an ageing suburb on Hobart's eastern shore. And now we've both settled our families in the chilly Huon Valley, half an hour's drive south of the city. Monk's a forthright and amusing forensic policeman who's also managed to carve out reputations as a tenor singer and wilderness photographer. I'd be terrible at all of these things. He's burly and has a big personality that booms through a room and he's not afraid to give an opinion. I was angry that the fires weren't jumped on immediately because it was blatantly obvious to me and a number of other people, that there was a massive problem when that lightning came through. But this is tempered by his experience of how such organisations work, a recognition that he doesn't have the expertise or all of the facts. Yet it's clear that tremendous damage was done by the Tasmanian fires in the early part of 2016, compounded by the winter floods that tore away the scorched soil and jumbled the trees. But I'd stopped reading all the articles spelling out a series of similar, earnest, 
crucial and utterly terrible facts, that the rainforest just doesn't recover like the eucalypts do, that serious consideration needs to be given to changing the way we allocate firefighting resources, the dangers that further climate change would cause, the devastation that would ensue, the management practices that would need to be enacted. I knew these facts well enough, and all they did was make me feel powerless. I felt crowded by the theme. Perhaps this was reflected in a question I asked Tarkai National Coalition Director Scott Jordan when we visited the northeastern forests on the first day. Do you reckon there's any weariness in the national media about covering Tasmanian forestry issues and Tasmanian environmental protests? But very few writers had visited the area. The temperate rainforests of the largely unprotected Tarkine are modern-day battleground for the environmental movement against forestry practices and mining leases, are a hell of a long way from Hobart, let alone the mainland, about as far away as you can get from the capital city without treading water in the Indian Ocean. And I wanted to see this devastation on the ground and how the area was recovering. It was a landscape for which I felt a certain responsibility, as though a much-loved sister was in hospital, and even if there was little I could do, at least I could visit and sit by a bed. We start from my place about 6am, shoving the gear in the back of the car. I've been up at 5, an hour before normal, but normal is already tiring at the moment, and Monk and I are both getting over colds. Still, we're setting off on the warmest day since spring had begun to split the seams of winter. There are clouds of blossom in my fruit trees and the magnolia is nearly ready to stretch out its petals. Heavy rain is forecast for later in the day, so instead of camping out in the forest, we've decided to borrow a bed in Smithton, a regional centre on the opposite corner of the island. Travelling inland from the coast of Bass Strait, we make our way through bright green agricultural country as the roads thin country that makes the patches of eucalyptus forest seem more luscious than they otherwise would. It's not long before we're eaten up by these forests, and I think of other roads where the transition between farmland and wilderness is so striking, in the Derwent Valley just past Ooze and on the road to Mount Field. These are not surprising forests in themselves, just typical bushland that you meet all over the island, normal as suburbs or fields, but we suddenly burst out on a ridge of scrubbier country, the road changing from orange-brown gravel to dirty white. And it all seems a lot more like the rugged and uncom- uncompromising southwest corner of the state, until the vegetation opens up and we see the trees stretching out before us, long tracts of rolling forest with subtle hills and highlands. And then it's no longer like the southwest. It's somewhere all of its own. We meet Scott Jordan and Marie Jenkins at the Tarkine Wilderness Lodge, where Marie is the proprietor. The day I came out, we'd just come out of court, actually, where Venture had tried to wind us up. Jordan's talking about legal action Venture Minerals had launched against the TNC. Just walked out of the courtroom, turned on my phone, and there was a Facebook post from Marie saying the fire brigade said it's going to hit tomorrow. So I raced back to Bernie, packed a bag and got out here. Jordan is a stocky man with a bald head, deep beard 
and a small jelly tucked into his blue polar fleece. Outside his work with the TNC, he's a wildlife carer, with a yard full of native fauna in one of Bernie's roughest streets. The paddy melons, possums and Bennett's wallabies he cares for are released up at the lodge, where they're gathering around us in their friendly dozens. Bentley, Bounce, Jenny and countless others. Jordan had been worried about his former charges when he first heard that the fires were coming close, but also about Jenkins and her lodge, and he ended up spending ten days there, priming the pumps and waiting on updates from the fire service. Jenkins explains how it all got started. I was down the Arthur River with some guests. It was the morning after the storm and we walked round to the island and I could smell smoke. Within ten minutes the valley just filled up with smoke. And she knew that it would mean trouble. In her 27 years in the area, the forest was the driest she'd ever seen it. Even the moss was crunchy. And Jordan offers a similar reflection. He'd taken a party into the forests around two weeks before the fire struck. Normally, he says, you come home from the rainforest feeling pretty invigorated. I went home that day feeling dread. We strolled down towards the rainforest together the open fields where decades ago Jenkins' uncle had adjusted horses, had been crisscrossed with dozens of bulldozer tracks, cleared to halt the advance of embers. There are one or two explosions of feathers on the ground where plovers have been taken by wedge tails. We slip into a gap in the forest, and it's lovely open walking here too, the kind of country where the trees are loose and the tracks barely recognisable, where the notion of track is up for question in an open understory beneath the fields of green. We visit a massive myrtle, nearly a thousand years old, and then walk along a tannin stream. This kind of forest is also very familiar. There's a Tasmanian joke about how few people bother to bushwalk along the forested side of Lake St Clair at the bottom of the overland track more than once. There's a ferry that bypasses the forest, which, for all its stunning ancient trees and grappling waterfalls, can seem interminable. It's easy to feel a little hemmed in after a long day walking through rainforests, but if you're in the mood, they can be wonderful. On longer overnight trips, they can be a refreshing break from impassable scrub or the searing summer. And there's no question that they're remarkable. Their innate, ancient value is carved into every tree. And I'm kind of shocked at the thought of the fires coming within a few kilometres of this kind of vegetation. Do I really want to see what's being charred in the depths of this corner of the state? Recently I've been trying to read the Lorax to my son. He's too young, really, and his attention fades in favour of the weird rainbow-coloured monkey thing that he can cram into the back of his yellow truck. But I always want to finish the book. It's Dr Seuss, after all, and it feels like I could read those rhymes all day. In another year or so, I'll probably have to. My favourite book as a child was Green Eggs and Ham, and sometimes I think that the poetry I write should be more like Dr Seuss. Perhaps one day there'll be a Jonathan Richmond transition where I stop it with the proto-punk and get going with real songs like Ice Cream Man and Hey There Little Insect. But the other obstacle I've found to reading the Lorax to my son is that I keep tearing up. 
Early in 2016, the 89-year-old gardening presenter Peter Cundall was speaking to Philip Adams at the Tamar Valley Writers Festival. Reflecting on environmental changes, he said, When I see very little children, it's so moving. I want to cry because they're so beautiful and so innocent. And you think, what have they got to go through? It's going to be infinitely worse than I've ever had. I guess I'm a little way along this spectrum. The story of the Lorax, if you've never come across it, tells of a boy going to see a character called the Onceler, who lives in a barren wasteland, and you never see any more of the Onceler than his long green arms and hands. And this Onceler explains how when he first came to the region it had been full of stupendous truffula trees. Against the protests of the Lorax, he built a factory and used the tufts of these trees to produce the needs utterly useless garments. It's a shirt, it's a sock, it's a glove, it's a hat. But it has other uses, yes, far beyond that. The landscape is trashed, the trees all disappear, the water and the air are polluted. For all of its virtues, the Lorax isn't subtle. Yet it's a book that can give rise to simple emotions, and the simple emotions can be the powerful ones. They get essential things done, and they stop them from being done. They're the kinds of feelings I had when the pictures of burnt pencil pine forests in the higher country were first broadcast. The sense of uselessness, the irretrievable waste. The story of the Graziers who deliberately set fire to the central highlands in the 1960s Destroying thousands of these pines makes me want to throw something blunt and metallic at the years gone by. It's a kind of Library of Alexandria moment for this part of the wilderness. A senseless destruction of something that can't be recovered. But it's not just about the devastation. I've also been wondering how people concerned about environmental issues when co- will cope when its opponents can't be fought or condemned in spirited campaigns. You can't blockade floods in the wilderness, and placards raised against bushfires will just burn. When there's nobody to take to court in a legal challenge, and it doesn't matter how much awareness you raise, the factors are global and out of your hands. There's a special kind of despair attached to powerlessness, and I wonder if this will be its own kind of disaster. The rain hits as the day darkens, just outside Smithton, and we let it have its say, grabbing a chamomile at the local pub, before meeting Nicole Anderson at the local district hospital. Anderson's a local GP and bushwalker, living on an island of greenery in the middle of the town's rise. She's been documenting the effects of the Tarkine fires and has also provided our beds for the evening. As the rain pounds down, her house feels very dry. We pore over maps laid out on the living room floor and Anderson describes the damage. She clearly has a love of the area, describing the gentle curves of the region as a landscape without guile, as an embracing landscape where you feel at home. But Anderson also has a determined intensity about her, a concentration on matters of fact that is split at times by articulate outrage, 
She's concerned about the public health effects of the fires, the smoke that choked the northwestern corner of the state. I had people with heart problems, lung problems, she explains. And about the loss of so many creatures in the fire's tread. But she's remarkably sanguine about the burning itself. Here the maps do the talking. We follow the fire's route through button grass and coastal scrub, country that's meant to burn, just like old-fashioned eucalypt forests, as well as areas of plantation timber. Yes, she explains, there were rainforest seams and areas damaged, and some would never be the same, but the vast majority of the burning took place in areas that were already degraded or in habitats that had been accustomed to fire regimes. The great swathes of temperate rainforest were outside the fire zones. When people were aghast that the tar kind was burning down, I wasn't, she says, because really what I could see most of it was already disturbed forestry operations. This lifts my evening considerably. Could it be that even in such parched conditions, Tasmania's dry spring on record... The rainforest still wouldn't burn? This teariness I spoke about earlier, it can rise up in empathy for a terrible loss that someone has experienced. But paradoxically, it presents even more powerfully when I come across kindness offered amid such grief, as though exposure to a sense of hope is almost more overwhelming than the devastation that prompted it. I'm wondering if any of this will hit me amid the burnt forests as it does when reading the Lorax, if I'll feel a weight of loss or the sense of new growth, and whether it will make a difference to my reaction. But what's astonishing to me is the comment we make most often on our trip. Look at that. Now that's a bit interesting. Over and over again. It's a response to what's burnt and what's been missed and how the landscape has responded. True, it was just a few points ahead of, look at that, jeez, that's fucked. But the difference was striking and even the latter felt more in the line of clinical observation than miserable lamentation. I felt abstracted in a way that I hadn't been expecting observing the burnt landscapes, as though I were reading another feature article plumbing the cost. I couldn't quite understand it. For most of the second day, we trailed down the west coast, observing where the fire cut a swathe through tea tree and scrubby country, and it's certainly stark. The panicked back burning near Arthur River, the dark banks of the Nelson Bay River churning with mud, the new rain bashing away at the soil overnight the armies of black sticks that were once scrubby ground and the most barren country I've ever seen in Tasmania, the jagged outlines of Sarah Ann rocks with all the vegetation burnt back, looking for all the world like a sick desert. But all of this country will recover. It's already on the way. I feel a sense of excitement, abetted perhaps by the churning sound of the river, in the realisation that even with all this twiggy anorexic abbreviation, this is burning country, it'll all grow back. There are tiny fungi like small brown pins pushed into the soil. 
sprouts of heath in bellflower. And while the roadside weeds are enjoying the chance to stretch out, there are new native shoots beginning to find spring. But even this buzz is overtaken by a certain detachment. My awareness of taking notes and watching. As we turn inland, we meet the first ravaged forest. There are scorched eucalypts sprouting with frilly ruffles of green leaves and the strange sight of burnt columns of ferns. Last year's fronds crumpled, bowed and twiggy like broken umbrellas, but with completely new green growth arching and unfurling above them. I didn't know they did that, we both say, or something like it, as we pull off the road to have a look. The contrast between bright green and black seems stronger than anything that day and night could offer, even as the evening begins to stretch out in the hours above us. On the following morning we rise early and drive through thick forest to the Dempster Plains. The road is covered by fallen trees. It looks like a bomb's gone off. A series of bombs drop from above. But there's nothing that blocks our path completely and we manage to weave a way through. These buttongrass plains are fascinating. I'm used to waking to walking through massive golden tussocks. Their long, thin stalks reaching up to round balls that crumble when you twist them in your fingers. But here, it looks an awful lot like, well, grass. Meadows, I say aloud. So many kilometres of green regrowth reaching down across the plains. And again I remember the Aboriginal burning practices. That this is meant to happen. So why are we worried about the trees, about this region at all? There's a cold southerly blowing across these new fields. We stroll down the slope into a transitional rainforest edging the plains. There's an Othophagus, says Monk. He's looking at the shape of the tree, the burnt small leaves, the fallen myrtle lying on the ground. This is very different. This isn't meant to burn. This had been a wet eucalypt forest, well on its way to rainforest. There's a border of long black trees lying on the ground with bushes of burnt brown leaves from the unthrown canopy, ashy dirt plastered to the roots. Other trees cling on, their blackened roots fumbling for water in the air. Here the soil's washed out too. I'm a bit nervous in here, says Monk, and I nod as we watch the wind and remember the recent heavy rain, wondering which tree will be the next to topple. We carry on into the forest until the signs of burning disappear. It's probably a hundred metres, then the trees are green and the browns are light and gentle, but the twisted destruction we've picked our way through is insistent. It's just a mess, isn't it? I reflect, as we make our way back up the hill to the button grass. In the open country, I notice tiny sundews growing back in the opened-up soil, glistening sticky nectar on their heads, and look north across the patchwork of burnt and unburnt forest. It's easy to think of human correspondences, Driving through Denali the year after the 2013 fires devastated the town, I was struck by the truth of apparent randomness. How one house can be spared, the next one remain standing. 
and it seems just like this looking out across the forests. But perhaps this reflects other underlying causes. Later in the day, at a lovely sinkhole filled with water and surrounded by rainforest species, we wonder, was this protected with a designated drop of water? Or is it just as Anderson suggested, that even with such an incredibly dry season, the rainforest couldn't bring itself to burn properly? We don't see enough of the area as a whole to make a judgement. We've heard that the rainforests in the Milkshakes Reserve were hit hard, though we don't have a chance to visit. But this seemed more than promising, even with all the burnt landscapes we've seen around the Rapid River. But then I realised that my mind had been led astray by that long black smudge on the fire maps. I'd been imagining great swathes of rainforest wiped out, rather than this patchy edging, and the comparison had lifted my spirits. Yet I shouldn't have been concentrating on the idea of a cataclysm of disaster averted. This is a kind of, of distraction, a flimsy optimism constructed from the pits and extremes of worst-case scenarios. The crucial question is what an event like this represents, and what it will mean in 50 years, as more fires burn at increasing ferocity, and another 100 metres of the rainforest are wiped out, and then another. There are habitats that will burn again, that are meant to burn, and there are habitats that are not. And they will not. Not all at once. But sometimes the real catastrophe is a process. In the Tarkine, hope and hopelessness were mirrored in the different habitats. Yet against all expectations, my dominant sensation had been a certain dispassionate thoughtfulness. One of the things I'm really interested in, I'd said to Scott Jordan, is there's been all these tactics that have developed over the decades, but when you've got a situation like the fires coming through, suddenly you're dealing with something that in a way we're powerless to combat. How does that change your thinking as someone campaigning? Well, look, it's a pretty helpless feeling, he'd begun, before transitioning to a more practical response. But there's parts of it that are political. When you start logging areas and you put the roading into areas and you splinter it up with plantations, you create fire risks. And I can see the sense of this approach, that this remains a human battle and we can do things to be prepared for it, that those who care about the environment may as well campaign on these matters rather than throwing up their hands at the global impact of climate change. So I regret growing weary of the same facts repeated in so many articles about the fires, of all the description and analysis speaking for the trees, the forest types, the management practices. As I wandered through beautiful forests savaged by flames, I found myself occupying the same detached territory, noting the facts as they stood facts that we must in some sense regard as clear-headed observers while they play out before us. And then? 
then perhaps we get to decide what needs to be done. And which simple emotions will help barrel us along to make the best of the bed we've made. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Tree Telling, Speak for the Trees. The podcast series has been generously supported by Eucalypt Australia. I'd like to thank my guests, Tim Entwistle, Jacqueline Troy and Ben Walter. Please check out the Mama Podcasts page on our website for links and further information about the episode at monash.edu forward slash mama. Thank you for listening.